today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Let's chat about the uh, the Royals. Uh, reason being, uh, Prince William has responded to Harry and Meghan's allegations, although I'm not sure that this was planned. It's a very, very short clip we're about to play you. And this was uh, while Prince William was on his daily duties, was asked uh, by a reporter of uh, if the uh, if the if William had talked to his brother and if the royal family was a racist family. Here's a small clip. You have to listen carefully. Is the, the royal family a racist family, sir? No, very much not a racist family. And then that was that, and off he went. Normally in a situation like that, uh, they probably wouldn't even even have answered the reporter's question. Uh, yesterday, uh, obviously, Prince Charles uh, just sort of whisked right out and didn't even bother answering any uh, any questions about the issue. Let's bring in Jamie Samhan, Entertainment Tonight, uh, Can- uh, Entertainment Tonight Canada Royal Insider, and is with us now. Jamie, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good, and then yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. Are you surprised we heard from William in that uh, real quick uh, walk-by there? Uh, obviously, it didn't look like it was planned. Were you surprised to hear from him today? It was definitely a surprise. So a bit of backstory for anybody who strictly follows the Royals. Um, when they do arrive to these different engagements, they never stop and talk to reporters. Reporters don't even ask questions at that point. It's normally just, good morning, how are you, and... Uh, said Royal walks into the engagement. So the fact that he both answered, have you spoken to Harry and, you know, you're found racist, uh, you know, it was a big moment to say the least. Do you think we're going to hear any more on this? Because, again, uh, with the Queen's uh, statement the other day, this was all going to be handled in privacy uh, within the family. Uh, do you expect, uh, uh, would you expect, that, obviously you're surprised that, that they've commented, but do you think we're going to hear anything more like this? I do think there'll be some more statements, uh, whether they're in this kind of impromptu fashion or whether, you know, the Queen has to put out a more formal statement. But I know a lot of people were not pleased with what she said. Uh, it was almost like they did kind of brush it aside. She said the recollections of the events vary, and they, they see it in a different way than Harry and Meghan said in that interview. So I do think we're going to hear a lot more about it. The press is certainly not going to let it go away anytime soon. A lot of people want answers, and they're not going to be quiet until they get them. Are you surprised that Harry and William, uh, at least at this point of this press con or of this uh, uh, media situation, that they have not talked? You'd think that maybe that night they would have been on the phone to each other. That's another thing I don't think anyone's you know really completely surprised by. We've known for a while that tensions between William and Harry have been you know they've escalated and it's gotten a bit better. And um, while you know over Christmas they did sign the kids' presents and you know they were talking. Things haven't been like when they were growing up, and you know they've they've had a lot of distance between them. So, you know, I think William would have heard or at least watched and what was said in that interview, and he would have been very one very hurt, concerned for his brother, and probably a bit angry. So, uh, you know, he probably wanted to gather himself before he has that conversation with him. Now, I understand that uh, William and Harry are supposed to go to the unveiling of a statue uh, of Princess Di. Do you know anything about that and, and when that is? Yeah, so this unveiling of the statue has been pushed back now for years, um, partly because of the pandemic, partly because it just wasn't ready yet. But it's supposed to take place on July 1st, which was Princess Diana's birthday. And it will it's in Kensington Palace Gardens, and it's a dedication that they both came together to honor their mother. At this point, there are still plans for Harry to go over there, as long as it is safe to do so. 
And, um, you know, they're supposed to come together. It's going to be a very interesting moment, and I can guarantee you everybody's eyes are going to be on it. Well, I guess a lot can happen between now and July 1st, can it? Yeah, it's a lot of time. And, um, I mean, I would... <laughs> We've been saying this for a year now, but I really hope that we can all travel by then. But we're going to have to take that into consideration as well, because the optics of Harry flying over to the UK to unveil a statue, if no one else can travel, wouldn't be good. Many have talked about uh, the firm and the gray suits and those that actually uh, run the royal family per se. Uh, Any idea whether the queen will have a word with them, whether she will clean house within the firm, clean the castle out and and try to address some of this before she she leaves her reign? I would love to think that she will. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of those people's status and their positions are quite cemented into the royal family. And at this point, the Queen has, um, while she's still you know, head of the monarchy, she has handed a lot of the decisions over to Charles. And, you know, they make them together. And in the end, it's still her choice. But this will be, you know, Charles's monarchy in a few years, give or take. And she knows that, you know, he has to kind of start to shape it to the way he wants to. So it'll more lay on him to, you know, be the one to make these changes. We all remember, I'm old enough to remember the Chuck and Die days and what happened there and, and, and just the disdain that people had for Prince Charles after that. And it's taken them years to reestablish uh, that relationship. How, how does this damage that, do you think, in the UK? Uh, it's almost like they're back to square one, at least for uh, North America and the rest of the world. They spent all those years, you know, the PR staff really pushed to have, you know, that support for Charles again when he does become king. Now, in the UK, people are viewing this a little bit differently, and people aren't taking Meghan's word exactly for gospel, and they are saying, well, you know what, it's more 50-50 there. But nevertheless, uh, they worked this hard, and they're just going to have to go back again and try to restore Charles's image before he does become king. Uh, obviously, we heard about the situation with uh, Piers Morgan, host of uh, Good Morning Britain, I believe it is, and he's been constantly, I guess, not a, certainly not a fan uh, of Meghan Markle's and uh, was spouting off the other day, uh, got into it with a uh, another co-host and ended up walking off and has since uh, parted ways with that show. How much is, is that story holding uh, in the UK? Does, how much does his opinion count? It's definitely a big conversation. I mean, um, Piers Morgan has said some absolutely awful things, not just about Megan, but about other uh, female reporters, female stars. Uh, Carolyn Flack, who was the host of Love Island, um, he attacked her for many years, and uh, unfortunately she ended up committing suicide. So his words, words do hold weight, and they do affect people. So I think it's about time that he you know, had to step aside. Uh, we understand that uh, they're making a big to-do about Megan was one of the people that complained, but there was apparently like 40,000-plus complaints to, uh, to uh, officials about his, uh, his actions on the broadcast. Yeah, I believe it was uh, 41,000 people put, sent in complaints saying what he is saying is not acceptable. Uh, Megan was one of them, but she wasn't writing in to say, I don't like what he said about me. She was writing in on behalf of other people who might have mental health issues, who might be struggling and thinking of getting help, and then hearing Piers Morgan's words about how, you know, don't believe her and it's all fake and, you know, none of it's real. And they might be very well affected and say, well, you know what, if, if he's saying that, maybe, maybe my problems aren't real. And those are the people she was worried about. Where do you see this going, Jamie, in the next week or so, the next couple of weeks? 
I think it's just going to escalate. It's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, there's a lot of people who need to be held accountable. There's a lot of things that need to be looked into. They had opened an investigation into the bullying claims against Megan, but nothing about uh, her being denied mental health access or the racism claims. So there needs to be a lot of work that has to be done both behind the scenes and in the public dimension. Good point. Jamie Samhan with us, Entertainment Tonight Canada, Royal Insider. Make sure you're watching ET Canada tonight for more on all of this. Jamie, thanks for the time as always. Uh, be well. My pleasure. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've certainly talked about the spread of misinformation, the spread of BS, the spread of fake news. Uh, The president of the United States, former president of the United States, certainly made uh, the term fake news uh, extremely popular. But who is buying into this stuff? Who believes this? Who who thinks the earth is still flat? Uh, Those who spread uh, BS are more likely to be duped by it themselves says a new University of Waterloo study. Let's bring in Shane Luttrell, Ph.D. candidate in cognitive psychology at the University of Waterloo and is with us now. Shane, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm doing very well. So uh, I, I guess it's not surprising that those that spread BS buy into it themselves. Is, is, that, is that anything new? Well, um, it, it, it kind of is surprising and not surprising. I guess it depends on who you ask. So... You know, the study was kind of based off of that old saying, you know, you can't BS a BSer. Um, and I kind of wanted to know if that was true. Because there are some people out there that they'll spread BS without even realizing it because they actually, as you were talking about earlier, conspiracy theories, they, they take it in and they actually believe it and they tell other people because they believe it. But I wanted to look at people who intentionally tried to mislead others and uh, whether or not they are susceptible to the same types of BS that they put out, uh, whether or not they're susceptible to falling for it. And got some pretty interesting results, I think. So at the end of the day, is this uh, about people stumbling upon information that isn't correct and then just buying into it because it's something that they would believe? Or are these diehard conspiracy theorists? I I think it all depends on, on the type, I guess, the type of BS that they're they're buying into because there are certain um, motivations that people have for wanting to believe things like if they come across false information that kind of aligns with their preconceived uh, views they can be ideological views of some sort um, but absent of that because we really didn't look at that what we wanted to look at is if if we give people like kind of neutral misinformation that isn't kind of politically or ideologically charged whether or not they're more likely to fall for that and we, we kind of did it by constructing it kind of randomly. So we took sentences that had like new age or scientific buzzwords, and we randomly constructed them using a computer algorithm. So the sentences make like syntactic sense, like the nouns and verbs are all in the, same, the right places. But when you actually read them, since it's just a bunch of buzzwords and jargon, they don't actually make any semantic sense. They're meaningless sentences. And we found that people who engage in uh, more often in what we call persuasive BSing, which is, you know, the, the kind of standard kind of BSing, like maybe, you know, former presidents engaged in a lot. People do, do that are also more likely to believe that these completely meaningless statements are scientific or truthful or profound. You know, they, they, if it sounds true to them, they actually think that it is true, which was interesting. So in other words, I believe this, therefore you should too. Yeah, kind of. Um, how do you, how do you fall into this trap? (laughs) 
Well, I'd say if you're somebody that buys into more ideological stuff, uh, you just want to believe BS that kind of like uh, coheres or agrees with your beliefs that you already have because that makes you feel better. It makes you feel part of that group. But for people that have um, kind of a, a problem with believing BS that's more neutral, just like misinformation that's out there uh, that isn't kind of politically charged, uh, they tend to be people that um, they they rely more on like intuition and gut feelings when they encounter information. Um, they don't engage in as much like critical analytical thought. So they don't really when they come across this information, they'll, they'll get a gut feeling that it seems true, so it is true, and they don't really take the time to actually think about it and and work it out in their heads. And they also so, tend to do worse on like measures of intelligence. So they don't make any attempt to verify anything that seems out of the ordinary. Well, when the, what some of our work suggests is that when they do try to work through some of these problems and actually try to think about it some more, um, instead of giving a really good critical logical thought, what they do instead is they're more likely to rationalize. So what we found with these persuasive BSers, when they come across information that kind of sounds true, they for them, they interpret that as a cue that it actually is true. So when they think about it, they try to rationalize in their head why it might be true. So if it comes from like a, a what they consider to be like an authoritative source, well, this person's an authority, therefore what they're saying must be really smart. So I need to talk myself into why this is, why I should believe this, because it is smart. So they kind of rationalize their way into it a lot of time. More and more are blaming this on social media and the Internet. Uh, obviously, algorithms uh, will allow information that is of fancy to you to be directed uh, directly to you. Is this just the new world, or will the pendulum swing back here, and we will have more trust in institutions? Uh, I think it's probably an issue that's always been there. It's just social media uh, kind of amplifies it. We're, we're just more aware of it. Um, and, and, and the Internet and social media gives you faster access to misinformation. So I don't, I don't think, like, the mechanisms have changed. People have always kind of fallen for false, false beliefs. Um, and people have always, uh, probably from the beginning of time, been big VSers. Those, those people have existed. But I, I do think that some of the things that you mentioned, like the algorithms and the quicker access to this misinformation, probably amplifies it a little bit. Um, I don't know if the problem is ever going to go away, but we probably can develop some steps to try to like lessen the effects or try to diminish it in some way. How do you do that? Uh, well, there's some research out now looking at different ways. Like um, there's some research by uh, Gord Pennycook out of University of Regina uh, and David Rand out of MIT, and they show that we can kind of nudge people to be to to have more of an accuracy-focused mindset when they come into contact with information. So. If you see something on social media like Facebook or Twitter, if they kind of have a nudge like uh, suggesting that the person before they read the story think about how accurate it is and think about whether or not what it's saying is true, then this can actually have an effect to make people be more critical when they consider it. And there's also some other research going on that um, has had some success with, with video games that try to show people uh, different ways to, to think about misinformation when they encounter it and different and to how to look at the signs of how to identify misinformation. And that research has showed a little bit of promise as well. This seems to be easily teachable. Uh, you know, it's like learning how to drive a car and staying out of the ditch. Should everybody be watching the social dilemma here? I mean, why is this not being, why, why are we not teaching this? Well, I think part of, you could, we could start earlier in schools and teaching critical thinking skills in schools. 
Um, I think that would be very helpful. I wouldn't necessarily rely on the Social Dilemma movie as much because it's it's already been criticizing for itself having some misinformation in it. So yeah, uh, I might I might watch that maybe for entertainment purposes. But uh, if we started earlier in schools teaching critical thinking, I think that would help. But one of the things that our study showed is that even for for people that engage more in in BSing others, even the people that were better at critical thinking and were smarter still made this error, and it's it's in it's an error that they're making at the cognitive level, and we're not quite sure why that error happens, that they, they mistake sounding you know, accurate for being accurate. So we're still looking into that, but it, it is a, a cognitive error they're making that I'm not quite sure how to approach yet in, in fixing that. Are you surprised you're even studying this now, <laughs> that this has become such an issue? I, you know, I, I, I am a little bit. It was, it was something that I was interested in because I'm, I'm originally from the, from the U.S. And I moved up here. I came to Waterloo specifically to study this because I, I could kind of see on the horizon that it was starting to become such an issue. Um, I kind of lament the fact that it has become an even larger issue since I've lived up here um, just in society in general. So it's, it's both surprising to me, but at the same time, it's, it's not really surprising because this just – like you said, with social media and conspiracy theories and misinformation out there, it just kind of seemed the direction we were going. Wow, lots of work for you in the future, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> Shane Luttrell with us, Ph.D. candidate in cognitive psychology, University of Waterloo. Those who spread BS are more likely to be duped by it themselves. Shane, thanks for the time. Fascinating stuff. Be well. Yeah, thank you, Scott. You too. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.